Our first reading comes from Psalm chapter 1, and it's the whole of the psalm. The way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is the word of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And our second reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith which you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Okay, thank you. Our Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this time this morning where we can fellowship with each other and fellowship with you, where we can worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, we desire to hear from you now. We pray that you would uh, indeed build us up, establish us in the faith, and help us to know how to get there. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, I wonder... If you can think of a time in your life where you have recently grown bored of something. For me, the first thing that comes to mind is music, songs. Um, you might be familiar with the pattern. You find a song that you find enjoyable and then you listen to it again and again and again and again. And it gets a little bit boring after a while. Uh, gradually the melody loses its um, excitement, the novelty wears off, and um, the, the grip of the words uh, seems to um, lose its grip on you. And we may get even to the point, as this has happened to me, um, where we cannot even fathom why we would have liked that song at all. Um, me and Justin Bieber, just saying. <laughs> I might regret saying that later, but we'll, we'll see. Um, <clears throat> and this can be true of many things. Um, it can be true of sports. It can be true of hobbies. It can be true of friends, in our marriages, with food and with work. Um, <clears throat> I read a, an article that said the average Australian... Um, has a tenure in their workplace of about three years. 
Um, the average Australian buys a new smartphone every two years. Um, and I've known uh, people uh, in my life who have uh, bought cars so regularly, it's at least once every year, at least for some periods of their lives. But whatever the thing is, um, our love for things tends to grow cold. Gradually, the things that brought us, brought us great pleasure uh, grow further and further apart from us until we lose interest in them altogether. And the danger that Paul was aware of when writing our text this morning is that each and every one of us will be tempted to grow apart from Christ in the same way. Um, and his exhortation to us is bent on making us to see the greatness and the glory of Christ so that we continue to walk in him. And the focus of this passage really is on the walking. Uh, the, this is the place in the letter where Paul typically changes uh, from the indicative to the imperative. I think I've got that the right way around. And while we've seen the greatness of Christ before in, in, the, in the letter thus far, uh, now we are going to see how we are called to respond. So our message this morning is divided up into three parts. Firstly, at how Paul gets the Colossians to look back at how they received Christ, how they began. Secondly, he turns their minds to contemplate who it is that they've received. And then finally, we will look at his exhortation to keep on walking. So firstly, Paul focuses on how they began. And when we read the verse, we see this is because how they walk is based on how they began. We'll read it, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So Paul says to the Colossians, Look back, look back at how you received Christ. Now we know that the Colossian church first heard the gospel from Epaphras. We see that in chapter one, who in turn probably received the gospel from Paul himself. Um, but other than the specifics of how it happened, where it happened, how they received Christ would have been uh, no different to how each of us received Christ. Nevertheless, uh, the word received here is worthy of special attention because it plays such a vital role in um, how we interpret Paul's exhortation to walk. So three observations on how, uh, what, what it means to receive. Firstly, to receive means to accept a gift. Um, we have Christmas coming up soon, and some of us have had birthdays recently. When you receive a gift, the gift is placed into your hands, and you merely receive it. We don't work or merit to receive the gift. It is given to us. It is, in a sense, by grace. Grace is a gift. And in the same way, we didn't deserve or purchase or merit any part of our salvation or any part of our access to Christ. This has been a gift to us. It started when the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, when he predestined us, when the Father then sent his Son into the world to become a man, 
Then the son paid the debt of our sin. When the son rose from, uh, from death to life, the son then spoke to his apostles to reach us with the good news and the spirit gave us faith to believe in the gospel. Our receiving has to first be by grace. And so the way we continue is by grace. Secondly, receiving involves faith, involves faith. Um, and Paul has given us a good example of this when he explains the Colossians conversion in chapter one. We read in verse three of chapter one, Paul says, we thank God always, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learnt it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. So notice three things about the Colossian response. Firstly, is that they heard and understood. We see that in verse six. So it has to under uh, has to enter into our minds so that we can understand the gospel. But secondly, they then believed and saw the gospel as truth. See that in verses four and five. So here we're moving from intellect to conviction. Paul actually refers to this as well in, in chapter two, verse two, where he says uh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Uh, most of the time when I, when I hear that verse explained, I, I hear... Um, uh, assurance of salvation and that's certainly a part of it um, but I think more to the point is uh, a conviction of something being true a, a firm assurance that something is true uh, which is slightly different we might put it like this what I understand I am fully assured of as truth before we are able to say I know that I'm saved we must first be able to say, I know that this is the way of salvation. I know that Christ is the way to God. But that leads us then to verse 5 of chapter 1, which is that the gospel became their hope. Um, and this has something to do not just with belief in the certainty of facts about Christ or the gospel, but an appropriating belief, a belief that takes Christ and makes him your own. It is to think not only that Christ died for sinners, but that Christ died for me, a sinner. Not only that Christ intercedes for his saints, but that Christ intercedes for me, his saint. Um, that Christ reigns and governs all things, not just for the good of those who love him, but for the good of me, because I love him. Do you see? slightly different it's that thinking that turns factual reality into hopeful expectation it makes us consider the benefits of christ as completely for us 
and never estranged from us. And this fits rather well into the definition of receiving, because the Greek word for receiving is paralambano. And that means to receive, but also to take, to take something for oneself. So when someone gives you a present or a gift on Christmas, you'll have to reach out and grab it with your hands. And at that point, it becomes yours. So with true faith, Christ becomes our life. We appropriate him so that he is ours. To be both the source and the center for everything. To be the lens through which we view everything. To be the authority in how we view um, reality and how we live our lives. And then most importantly, that he becomes the delight of our hearts when we receive him by faith. The true faith, if we can put it this way, will not see this Christ as another man's Christ. He will be your Christ. So firstly, we move from understanding to um, that conviction and then that uh, appropriating him as ours. And then thirdly, the last thing about receiving, um, which adds on to this second point, is um, that we receive uh, the gift and the object of our faith, um, that it's primarily not the doctrine about Christ, but it is Christ himself. And I think that's very plain when we read it. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. There is a great danger in keeping Christ as abstract. We cannot strive only to assent to the correct theological doctrine, although that's important, but we have to also um, be transformed by the presence of a person. Christ has to be with us. I mean, think about that, that word presence. And then just in relation to your own life, does your life reflect the presence of a person? Have you received into your life a person who has a presence in your life? I think this is something that really hit home for me, is that the time I spend with Christ is uh, often so sparse. And um, if we don't um, take notice of that, will be in danger. You might recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, where he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a knowing there that Christ has with his people um, that is, is far more than just understanding or even believing a set of theological principles about the gospel. So then Paul says, in summary, look back to your conversion uh, at how we receive Christ as a gift, so keep receiving him as a gift. So we understand and con are convicted of the truth, so remain convinced of that truth. As we received and appropriated the gospel benefits of Christ and Christ himself, so continue in a relationship with him. That's point one. Point two, that we have to contemplate who we have received. So 
not just receiving, but now who have we received? And there are two words here described, um, sorry, used to describe Jesus. And the first of those is Christ. I think that might be a bit obvious, um, a bit unexpected to focus on that word. Um, but we can't forget what the apostles labored constantly to prove in the Acts of the Apostles, which was to prove that Christ, or Jesus, was the Christ. Um, the Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah, Messiah meaning the anointed one. And um, in, in the for the Israelites, um, anointing was uh, common uh, a common symbol for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So the Messiah is the perfect or complete fulfilling the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Someone who is the prophet, priest, and king of Israel is the savior of Israel. So when we're thinking of Christ, we're thinking of the savior, uh, the person who has delivered us from the domain of darkness from chapter one, the person uh, who has um, reconciled us to himself, who has saved us from our sin and washed us clean from it. And coming back to the context of Colossians, uh, we don't know what the circumstances were behind Epaphras um, being brought to Paul or going to Paul, uh, but we know enough to, to know that there were there were gospel warning signs for Paul. We know that Paul had experienced uh, something perhaps similar in uh, with the church of Galatia, where they had um, walked away from the true gospel to a different gospel. And so Paul's exhortation is to remain in the gospel Christ, not a different Christ but the Jesus who is the saviour. Um, I don't know if many of you have read The Hobbit, um, but there is a, a very helpful scene in that book where um, the, the company of hobbits and uh, one hobbit and uh, dwarves walks through an enchanted forest and Gandalf says to them, stay on the path because this wood's enchanted and if you walk off the path, you're not going to be able to get back on again. You can't get back on again. And it's the same with Christ. The hobbit and the dwarves walked off the, off the path and they didn't get back. They couldn't find their way back. And Paul's saying the same thing. Stay on the path. Don't walk away from Christ. At times, uh, staying on the path might look plain. It might look simple, too simple. It might seem boring. The en enemy will often try and pretty the things of time and distract us and, and uh, make um, dazzling the things uh, that will lead us ultimately to our own destruction. Uh, in uh, the wilderness, the um, Israelites were eating the food of angels, manna. Um, and it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if, if, they got bored and complained about eating angels' food. How much more are we going to get bored about Christ? And so Paul reminds us, keep with the Savior. 
Remain with Christ. That's the first word, Christ the Savior. And it is essential. And yet, um, part of me uh, can't help but think that the second word is often more forgotten and one that we need perhaps a greater reminder of, and that is that Christ is the Lord. I fear that uh, perhaps in many churches, if a preacher was to stand up and, and preach about this text, explain that Jesus is the Savior, and we need to walk in him as the Savior, and then close the Bible and leave it at that, perhaps no one would think about what about the Lordship of Christ. It's something that is um, perhaps less comfortable to think that Christ is not only our Savior, but also our Lord, that he has to dictate, but he does dictate everything that we ought to do. I went deep sea fishing with a few friends um, just last week. Um, we got up very early in the morning, um, ate, um, ate wheat bix, and that's possible for young people, and um, got up in the boat and the skipper was taking us out into the water. And uh, as we were going out into the, into the deep, um, a small police boat came and, and flew by um, patrolling the water and I think going to book someone. But say that I fell off the boat and the crew on my ship didn't notice and then I was stranded and I was calling out for help and they managed to come. And then they pulled me out of the water. <clears throat> I would be filled with such gratitude because I'm not a great swimmer. I probably wouldn't have made it. Um, but then say, after my initial feeling of gratitude and perhaps after getting too friendly with the captain, I stood up, ran to the steering wheel and took control of his boat and started going wherever I want to go. What do you think would happen? I'd probably forcibly be taken away from the steering wheel if I persisted and tried to keep moving the boat the way I wanted it, I'd probably get arrested, maybe. This is the police we're talking about. And it's the same with Christ. We've been drawn and pulled out of the water and saved by his grace, brought onto his boat. And he's the savior, but he's the captain. He's the Lord. He's the one who is in charge. And when we're adopted into the household of God, we can't ignore the head of the house. He has rules and expectations that he's made plain in scripture. And to live in such a way that routinely undermines them or ignores them or doesn't even look for them, his commands, is to show contempt, a great contempt for his authority. worse than getting arrested we may even be thrown back into the water together and so yes jesus is our savior 
but he also is our Lord. He is the Lord of our faith and of our life. He is the rule by which our lives must be governed and directed. He's the firstborn, as we looked at a few weeks ago, over all creation. He sustains all things, which means if you've received Jesus as Lord, then it needs to change everything. We often hear about Jesus being the king of kings, but have you thought about Jesus being the king of the saints, the king of his own children? Just as true faith will appropriate Jesus as the saviour, so true faith will also appropriate Jesus as Lord and take him as your Lord. Just as we are ready to say amen to the sufficiency of Christ to save us, so we must say amen to the lordship of Christ over us. And so that's the second point, that Jesus is the saviour and that he is the Lord. And while the world will see him as neither, we must hold him up as both. He must be both or else he is neither. And then our third point, <clears throat> and the emphasis of this passage, Paul tells us to keep on walking. Read in verse 6 with me again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we've mentioned already that the way we begin walking is the same way that we uh, first begin the Christian life we're receiving. So we don't embrace Jesus as Lord and as Savior just at the beginning of our conversion and then walk away. He must be Savior and Lord at the beginning, the middle, and the end. Just as you cleaved to him at the beginning, so we must now cleave again to him. And this is reflective of the last <clears throat> two words in verse 6, namely that we would walk in him, in him. It's a, a popular phrase in the New Testament, particularly for Paul. And you might ask, what does it mean to walk in him? What does that refer to? It's a strange idea. It doesn't sound like we would normally refer to things um, these days. And what it's referring to is our union with Christ. It's a theological concept that uh, has implications for us positionally and relationally. Positionally, it means that we stand hidden in Christ mm -hmm. and are so covered by him that when God sees us, he sees Christ. We receive all his benefits, his righteousness, namely, um, but also many other things. And then secondly, <clears throat> relationally, it means that we have regular communion with God as the Holy Spirit works to conform us to the image of Christ. And it's a similar concept to what we see in chapter 1, verse 27. I think it's 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, that he's in us, that we have communion with him. 
So when we come to a command that's, that says walk in him, it means walk in fellowship with him, walk in communion with him. Every day, walk with him, as Anita's version said. And Paul expresses this then, having said that, with a few images. <clears throat> the first is walking. Um, it's similar to what we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Um, first Thessalonians, I think, chapter 4 as well. Um, but we won't go into too much detail on that one. But the second is being rooted. Um, the picture of a tree, um, which has roots that goes down into soil that is both firm and rich. And that soil is Christ. Christ is the soil and where the tree and our roots need to be in him. Uh, trees roots serve at least two functions. Um, they go down firstly to get nutrients from the soil so that it can feed the tree so that it can grow. And then secondly, they go down into the ground so that when the winds blow against the tree, it's anchored in something. And we read in Ephesians about the, the winds of doctrine, do we not? And it keeps us anchored in Christ so that we don't walk off the path. Without roots, the tree begins to wither. It fails to bear fruit. It's uprooted and eventually dies. And so Paul is making the point that we need roots in Christ, not just for the beginning, lest we uproot ourselves and go somewhere else, but also for life now. A tree never outgrows its need for its roots. And so we will never outgrow our need for Christ. Uh, turn to, to Psalm 1 with me. We're going to read that psalm again. Um, starting from verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Without delving too much into the detail of this psalm, there are at least four characteristics that I can see um, by the plain statement or implication of a healthy tree. First is that it yields fruit, that it doesn't just have leaves, that, it, that it's fruitful. Secondly, that it does not wither, that its roots remain firm and that it stands. Um, secondly, it prospers, which is another word to describe perfect prosperity. And then lastly, uh, that it's stable. It's not like the chaff. When the winds hit it, it's firm. It is everything that a good tree should be. 
And if we were to ask the question, why, how would you answer in the text? The answer I've got is that it's been planted. Planted. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. That's intentionally planted. It didn't um, just happen to get there. Healthy trees do not thrive on careless planting planting sorry just like healthy christians do not thrive on careless living and by living i mean i'm referring to how we have communion with christ we must be careful not to uproot ourselves from christ but instead verse 2 delight in the law of the lord and meditate on it day and night and so if you're here this morning and you've somehow, don't know how, but gotten to a place where um, you're not by the stream, your roots aren't deeply in the soil, and come back. If you're losing confidence in the necessity of communion with Christ, then repent and come back to him. Don't walk away. Okay, back to Colossians. Uh, the next image <clears throat> that Paul um, gives us is being built up like a building. So Paul is likening us to the building. I think that's potentially borrowed from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And um, the inference is that the building has to have a foundation. Every building is built on something. I've been doing paving. And getting the foundation right is terribly difficult. Rick will attest to that. Um, if we have Christ, we'll be like the wise man who's built on a firm foundation. But if we build on anything else, we are like the fool building his house upon the sand. The house will collapse. The building, us, will collapse. Uh, this image of building is not uncommon Uncommon in the New Testament. Um, we also see it in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Ephesians chapter 2. But you, says Paul, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then Jude, I'm surprised to read this, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up. So we're called to walk in Christ in a way that has our roots deep in him and in a way that builds ourselves up on his foundation. And what is the result? See in verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That is to be firm and to be stable. Not perfect, but mature. We can see the idea in at least three parts of 
Colossians so far, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, where Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, there's walking off the path again, from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Verse 28 of chapter 1, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Again, the idea of maturity, a tree that's grown up, a building that's been built up, something that's strong. And then chapter 2, verse 5, right before this text, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. That's Paul's goal. So to conclude, a few concluding remarks that I'd like to say, just three. The first two are to clarify what we should be thinking of when we think of walking, um, because it's easy to get confused about what we should be doing, what we should be expecting. And the first is simply to say that these images, um, building particularly and walking, uh, signify effort, real effort. I don't think it's a mistake that the evil man in Psalm 1 goes from walking to standing to sitting as he increases in his ungodliness. So it's clear to me that, that going in the wrong direction gets easier. No one, no godly person ever complained that sinning was too hard. Rather, it's, it's too easy. I mean, take the analogy of building then. As we build, that's a very difficult process. There are lots of things that need to be considered. It takes a lot of concentration and the labor itself, lifting, hammering, soaring, is difficult work. Which means that when each of us is tempted to do whatever, um, we mentioned being kind um, earlier, when we're tempted to walk in a way that is uh, contrary to Christ, we can't let, we can't ask God to do all the work for us. We have to do the work ourselves. And what we'll find is that after we've done the work, it's been him all along working through us. I mean, certainly we can be tired. I think many of us, even myself at times, do feel tired and the journey is a long one. It's not a sprint, but a marathon. But where our time in the world will make us stagger and tired, our time in the word will give us rest. Christ refreshes our soul. His power and refreshment so that we will not shy away from working. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to clarify, put it really helpfully this way. He says, the New Testament calls upon us to take action. It does not tell us that the work of sanctification is going to be done for us. We are to, we are in the good fight of faith, and we have to do the fighting. But thank God we are enabled to do it. From the moment we believe and are justified by faith and are born again of the Spirit of God, we have that ability. So the New Testament method of sanctification is to remind us of that 
And having reminded us of that, it says, now then, go and do it. Secondly, that um, the idea of walking and being rooted and built up signifies progress. This should be self-evident. If I began to walk at the bottom, at the, to the, towards the back of the room, I would no longer be next to the microphone. Um, if I begin to walk in Christ, I cannot stay where I am now. If I am rooted in Christ, the roots of a tree gain that nourishment and the trunk of the tree gets bigger. The roots of the tree go deeper. Um, and for every brick laid in a house the the building gets taller gets more complete and where we see a tree um, or a building that started five ten fifteen years ago and we see no progress we know something's not right there's no life in a tree that doesn't grow and holiness is the same we can we have a tendency i think sometimes um, to so exalt our sin and our inability that we tend to forget just how possible, just how necessary it is to grow in Christ. Sometimes we can be left doubting whether progress is possible. Um, but thanks be to God that it is possible, that he does give us his spirit, that he does work in us, and that Paul's call to be established is not a vain call. He doesn't ask us to be or do anything that is not possible. And then finally, if we are to walk, if we are to work, if we are to grow, then we ought to do it with all thanksgiving. That takes us right back to Christ and right back to the gospel, that um, we don't leave the gospel but thankfulness, gratitude is the hallmark of the Christian life right from beginning to end because it's all by grace. And so whatever hardship we experience, it will be sweeter. Whatever we're called to give up, he will be greater. All is Christ, Christ's, and Christ is yours. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you have spoken to us this morning. We pray, Lord God, that you would not let us depart from you, lest you ask us, on that final day to depart from you for you never knew us lord help us to run the race working and growing and being established and mature in the faith firmly convinced and assured of your love for us appropriating christ by faith walking in him having communion with him i pray lord that if we see little progress that you would please spur us on that we would grow up to be great oak trees of righteousness that would be like the tree in psalm 1 planted by streams of water and we pray all this for the glory of your son's name amen